Well, welcome back to our series through the book of Colossians uh, that we've titled The Supremacy of Christ. Um, If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open them to the book of Colossians. Uh, In your pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 983. Um, And if you do not own a Bible, feel free to take this home as our gift to you. We would love uh, for everyone to have a Bible. So today we're going to be in Colossians 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Um, To give you just a quick recap of where we've been, uh, we learned early on that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in a town named Colossa, a church that he didn't start, and for the most part, he's never met. Uh, One of Paul's disciples, a man named Epaphras, heard the good news of Jesus from Paul in Ephesus, then traveled back to his hometown in Colossae, and then started a church. Uh, That church believed the good news. They turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. They uh, thankfully began to grow in Christ. And yet, they didn't live in a hermetically sealed bubble. Um, Over time, there's this heresy known as Gnosticism, and it it begins to threaten the church. And what Gnosticism is, it's this false teaching that's centered around a secret knowledge that supposedly superseded Jesus. So that starts happening in the church in Colossae. Epaphras then leaves town and goes to Paul, who's in prison in Rome, and he kind of shares what's going on then prompting Paul to write back this letter to the church. We've seen in the beginning of this letter Paul's resume. Uh, We've seen his opening prayers for this church. Last week, we saw this glorious portrait of who Christ is um, that uh, that, that far eclipses the supposed secret knowledge of the Gnostics. Um, Today, we're actually going to get to see a glimpse of Paul's ministry, and his desire both for the Colossian church and for us here as Santa Cruz Baptist. So let's dive into the text. Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. This is the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Our four points for today are these. Number one, suffering for the church. Number two, the mystery of the gospel. Number three, maturity in Christ. And number four, encourage hearts. And uh, before we, we jump in, I just want to say this is going to be one of those sermons where we're just going to have to breeze over a, a number of verses just because of the sheer volume of text we're going over. There are a couple of phrases and even words in this section that could be whole sermons in and of themselves. So uh, we're definitely going to be spending a lopsided amount on a couple of these verses. And so uh, in light of that, I really want to encourage you guys to, to spend time in these texts outside of Sunday morning. Uh, study them, meditate on them, even pray through them in, in the way that we just did Psalm 130. Um, it's valuable to, to spend time yourselves in the Word of God uh, outside Sunday morning. So jumping in, point one, suffering for the church. Look with me again at verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, does that cause any of you to kind of lean back and, and scratch your head a bit? Maybe make your eyes widen a little bit? It should, uh, for two reasons at least. First, Paul says... That he rejoices in his sufferings. What in the world is he thinking? We can understand maybe rejoicing in our successes, or rejoicing in our happiness, or rejoicing in things that encourage us. But rejoicing in suffering? Are you crazy, Paul? We're more likely to grumble and mope during our sufferings. We're more likely to ask why in the midst of our suffering. Rejoice? What are you talking about, Paul? And to be clear, this isn't the only place in Scripture that says something like this. Now look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And here we go. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Rejoicing and suffering. Interesting. Look at what Peter says. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Got 
Paul saying that. We've got Peter saying that. In Acts chapter 5, we see something similar. That the apostles are arrested, they're thrown into jail, and they're told not to speak of Jesus. They decide to obey God rather than men. They speak of Jesus, and they're thrown in prison. An angel breaks them out of prison. They're almost killed. And then they're brought before a council. And look at what their response to all of this is. Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42. It says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Rejoicing in suffering. Feels like an oxymoron, right? Those two words don't feel like they should go together. But they do. And that's where Paul starts in our text this morning. So, why does Paul rejoice in his suffering? First, because his suffering did good to the church, Christ's body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we get this laundry list of, of all the sufferings that Paul experienced. And practically, without those sufferings, there would be no church in Asia. But it's more than that. Suffering does something in the believer that then benefits the people of God around them. Suffering sanctifies us, makes us grow to be more like Christ. It forces us to our knees in dependence on God. It helps us to see our weakness and Christ's strength. Suffering in Paul's life and in ours allows us to experience and walk in the shoes of Christ himself. But look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Tyler pointed out this passage to us last week. It says this. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here we go. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So for joy, Jesus endured the cross. Joy in suffering. Rejoicing in suffering. That's Christ-like. Experiencing Jesus isn't best done in a worship service with professional lighting and a fog machine. It happens best in the midst of suffering and rejoicing in that suffering. Now, I've quoted this before, but I'm going to quote it again here. It's often attributed to Charles Spurgeon, and the quote goes like this. He said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Gloria Furman adds here that sometimes you get seasick when you're learning to kiss that wave. That's true. Learning to kiss the wave isn't easy, but it's good. Suffering, when done well, draws us closer to Christ. 
and produces the character of Christ in us that then benefits the church, his body, the people of God. And I want to be clear here on two fronts. First, this kind of suffering and rejoicing isn't just for super-Christians. Rejoicing and suffering is what every single follower of Christ is called to, as a good thing which glorifies God and builds up the church. Second, suffering because of sin isn't the same thing as suffering for righteousness. Suffering because of our own sin isn't something that we should rejoice about, but something we should repent of. Suffering because of righteousness, on the other hand, or suffering under the normal circumstances of life, that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, there's another head-scratcher in verse 24 as well. Let's continue reading. So the first one is rejoicing in suffering. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What does Paul mean there by filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Sounds heretical, right? Jesus' afflictions? Lacking? I mean, we just learned last week in verses 15 through 20 that Christ is supreme over all things, over creation, over the church, even death itself. Jesus' afflictions? Lacking? What does Paul mean? Well, one thing we know he's not saying is that Jesus' atonement on the cross was lacking in any way. Jesus' cry from the cross was what? It is finished. He didn't say there's still more to fill. He said it is finished. No one can improve upon the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It lacked nothing and accomplished exactly what it aimed to do. The rest of the New Testament, and even the rest of the book of Colossians, attests to that truth. If you're new to Christianity, here's what I mean by this. This is at the core of of what Christians believe, that God created mankind in his own image to reflect his character, have relationship with him. But... Mankind sinned and rebelled against a holy God, rejecting him for their own autonomy. That sin cut off the perfect relationship with God that existed in the garden between Adam and Eve and their perfect creator. This is the the sole source of every evil and every amount of brokenness in this world and in our hearts today. Every single sin justly deserves death. Because every sin is an offense against a holy and an infinite God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his own son, Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, thus not inheriting original sin. He lived perfectly in every single way, never sinning and always obeying God. Then he went to the cross paid the full debt that each of us owed. He absorbed the full amount of God's just wrath in our place. He died, was buried, and then rose from the grave three days later, 
defeating once and for all, most importantly for our text, fully sin, Satan, and death. For those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, there's nothing lacking for atonement of sin. Nothing at all. Jesus' resurrection proved that it was fully accepted by God the Father and that we have nothing to add. That's the good news of the gospel. So, what is Paul saying here? Again, it has to do with suffering. Let's read again closely. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. While there are certainly different views on exactly what Paul's saying here, I believe that Acts chapter 9 clues us in. Uh, Before Paul was Paul, his name was Saul, and he persecuted Christians. He had them jailed and often killed. In Acts chapter 9, Paul's strolling along on the road to Damascus, and the risen Christ appears to him, and check out what happens. Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5 says, And falling to the ground, he, that's Saul, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So let me get this right. Saul persecutes the church, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Correct. Jesus so closely relates to his church that to persecute her is to persecute him. And I believe that's what Paul's saying here in the book of Colossians. A couple verses later in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 16 Jesus says this about Paul. He says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So what I'm saying is this. When Jesus' people suffer, Jesus is afflicted because he so closely relates to them. Paul was told that he'd suffer for the name of Jesus. He did, over and over and over again. And in that, he was continuing the afflictions of Christ for his people, not in an atoning sense. So, in its simplest form, here's what I believe Paul's saying. Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. Of who? All nations, right? Jesus could have made all disciples of all nations by himself. But he intentionally didn't. He left the charge of making the word fully known to the disciples and to us, to all Christians. When we obey the Great Commission, we will experience suffering and continue what Christ started in his afflictions. John Stott, in one of his most famous books, The Cross of Christ, he said this, and I think we've got it up on the screen for you. He said, The place of suffering in service and of passion in mission is hardly ever taught today, but 
The greatest single secret of evangelistic or missionary effectiveness is a willingness to suffer and die. It may be a death to popularity by faithful preaching the unpopular biblical gospel, or to pride by the use of modest methods and reliance on the Holy Spirit, or to racial and national prejudice by identification with another culture, or to the material comfort by adopting a particular lifestyle. But the servant must suffer if he is to bring light to the nations, and the seed must die if it is to multiply. So when we're on mission, we will suffer. And when we suffer, Christ suffers because he so closely relates to his body, the church. What's lacking then is Christ's physical presence in making the word of God known. Paul steps in and continues what Jesus started and intentionally left undone. You and I step in and continue what Jesus started and Paul picked up. One thing's for certain. Paul's suffering was good for the church. And in that, he rejoiced. So, I'll ask us this morning. Is this how you view suffering? When you suffer, do you tend to grumble or rejoice? Does suffering sanctify you and grow you more into Christ's likeness? Or are you more hardened by it? Finally, do you know that Christ is with you in the midst of your suffering? He is. He's with you. He cares about you. And he's using your suffering for your good and for the good of the church. Those things are true. Point two. The mystery of the gospel. Look with me at verses 25 through 27. He's talking about the church, and he says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of, his, of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, as I said, we're kind of going to fly here, so I just want to point out a couple of quick truths. First, notice what Paul's stewardship as a minister is. Verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. Make the word of God fully known. That was Paul's charge. That's my charge. And guess what? It's yours too. Now, I have the, the privilege and honor of making the word of God fully known through preaching each and every week. This is why we primarily teach through books of the Bible and not on felt needs or even current events or Drew's favorite hobby horse. Not that that's wrong every now and again to teach on a biblical worldview on a certain topic. That's not what I'm saying. But that the regular diet of the church should be expositional preaching through books of the Bible. We want to make the word of God fully known to you through preaching, through Bible studies, through one-on-one -on -one discipleship and counseling. We want the word of God to saturate every single thing we do here. 
because we want the word of God to be fully known. And that brings us to verse 26 and 27. Paul brings in this word, and he uses this word, mystery. When you hear the word mystery, what do you tend to think? I'm often moved to think of the word mysterious, or something that's unknown or fuzzy, maybe even not able to be known. It's mystery, right? But that's not quite how the Bible uses that term. In the Bible, the word mystery refers to the unmanifested or private counsel of God, which in the New Testament translates to that which was once hidden, but is now revealed. That which was once hidden, but is now revealed. So what's Paul talking about? He's talking about the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles. This goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Look at what God says to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the beginning, the promise of God to Abraham was to bless him so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Who are all the families of the earth? Not just Jewish people, right? But Gentiles. All of us, right? God's saving purposes would be extended to his chosen people and to all nations. Look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. It says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 12, Paul gives this, this laundry list of Old Testament texts that pointed to this truth, that the good news would be for all nations. Look at this, Romans 15, 8 through 12. Paul says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Here we go. We list off all these texts. It says, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. This was always a mystery to the Jewish people, right? How would God do all of this? How would he bring the Gentiles in? Paul's answer is in our text today. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mystery revealed. This is what it meant for Paul to make the word of God fully known, to preach the full gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and to call all the families of the earth to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. And guess what? When this happens, God transforms people, and his manifold wisdom is displayed in the church. This is Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, right? God made the two one in the church. The dividing wall of hostility was broken down, as we read earlier. The gospel gets displayed. That's glorious. Christ, not some super spiritual secret knowledge, is what breaks down barriers and brings about unity in the church. Christ is the center and object of Christian faith. He's the one who's been revealed to us and the one to which we cling. He's the only hope of glory. So rooted in that truth, Paul continues on in the next two verses to show us his purpose and his life in ministry. Point three, maturity in Christ. If Christ is the center, and if he is the only hope of glory, the next two verses just kind of make sense. Look with me at verses 28 through 29. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So, him we proclaim. It isn't self-help that Paul proclaims, but him, Christ. It isn't felt needs that Paul proclaims, but him. It isn't moralism that Paul proclaims, but him. If Christ is the center and the only hope of glory, if He's the mystery that's hidden but now revealed. He's who we should be proclaiming. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look at what he says next. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. If we, if we had a formal mission statement for our church, next to the Great Commission, this verse would be it. Proclaim Christ and present everyone Mature in Christ. Proclaim Christ. Present everyone mature in Christ. So many churches, unfortunately, take these two charges that were given, and they separate them. They say things like, we're an evangelistic church. We proclaim Christ. We're really not into discipleship. We're more about reaching people than teaching them. Or the opposite side of that. We're a discipleship church. We major on doctrine. We're more about teaching people than actually reaching them. No, that's a false dichotomy. Paul's goal in life and ministry is both proclaim Christ and present everyone mature. That's our goal as Santa Cruz Baptist Church. 
If you don't know Jesus, we want to proclaim him to you. We want you to know the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners like you and me. We want you to know that he's our only hope in life and death. But we're not just about seeing you saved. We're about seeing you sanctified as well. We're about seeing you mature in the faith. You're going to get really tired of hearing this, but here's our definition of discipleship again. A disciple is anyone walking in the way of Jesus Christ, intending to integrate their relationship with Jesus into every area of life. Discipling is the activity of believers to deliberately help another believer grow to be more like Jesus. We desire that every single believer who's a part of this church would continually grow more and more and more into maturity in Christ. And this has multiple components. Your head, your hands, and your heart. Your head. We, we talked about this two weeks ago. To grow in Christ means to grow in the knowledge of his will. We study the Bible. We study theology and doctrine and church history. We grow in knowledge and in spiritual wisdom. Your head's important. But there's also your heart. Gospel growth it isn't less than head knowledge, but it's much, much more. We want to help your affections grow to be more like Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So we want your head and your heart to grow in maturity. But there's also your hands. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. He says, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We want to be doers of the word. Christian maturity it involves all three of these things, the head, the hands, and the heart. There's so much more to say here, but due to time, we, we've got to move on. So I'll just simply say this. Well, we've put together version 1.1 of our discipleship packet, um, and they're out there on, on the table for you. If you're a normal part of our church and you want to be part of being discipled and growing into maturity, uh, we've been working hard at this as elders for the last three months, putting together a, a process for that. Uh, it, it's kind of like a, a GPS system. You need to know where you are to know where you're going. 
And so we put together kind of a pipeline, so to speak, for that. If this is where you are, this is your next step in discipleship, to do exactly what Paul's, Paul's saying here, to grow and present everyone mature in Christ. Um, you might have received an email from, from Tyler last week, just a, a, a thing to fill out, a, a survey, answering what books of the Bible you've actually read, what books of the Bible you're familiar with, um, what topics you're unfamiliar with in the scriptures. That helps us as the leaders of the church to know how to disciple you best, who to pair you with in a discipling relationship. So we encourage you to fill out that survey. If you're not on our email list, let me know. Um, and we can send it to you as well. Um, but we put together a packet that kind of explains what discipleship looks like here uh, as a church. So there's going to be more to come on what that actually looks like, but we want to see every believer mature in Christ. Uh, our fourth and final point today is this. Point four, encouraged hearts. Look with me at chapter two, verses one through five. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, again, now there's so much more loaded into these five verses, but I simply want to point out one quick truth and kind of encourage us toward application. Uh, these five verses aren't something separate from maturity in Christ and everything that Paul just said. They're actually part of it. In verse 1, Paul notes that he's struggling for this goal. It takes work. It doesn't just magically happen. Paul labors and struggles to see them mature in Christ. And then he gives them some specific detail of his concern in verses 2 and 3. He longs for their hearts to be encouraged and knit together in love. And for them to, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So well, what I want us to see is that these two desires actually go together. Knowledge and knitted hearts. What you believe about Christ changes everything, both now and in eternity. And the fullness of the knowledge of Christ comes through brotherly love in the church. F.F. Bruce, who's a Bible scholar and commentator, says this. He says, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the, Christ the Christian community. In other words, simply knowing about Christ intellectually won't lead to all the riches of full assurance and understanding. That can only be attained through the love Christians have for one another. When brothers and sisters in Christ love each other in the church, we experience Christ through them in a way we never could have without them. When our hearts are encouraged and knit together, 
we grow an understanding of who Christ is. Our knowledge is enhanced. It's like moving from a telegraph to color television, or even virtual reality for you young people out there. Look at what 1 John 3, 10 says. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So how do you know if you're a Christian or not? Two things. Do you practice righteousness? Do you love your brother? Where do you actually have the opportunity to love your brother? In the church. The intellectual knowledge of Jesus and real life as a part of the body of Christ, they complement one another. One without the other is severely lacking and deficient. This is why being a committed member of a church is so important for one's discipleship. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian in the Bible. Every metaphor for the church includes being part of something that's bigger than yourself. Think about it. A body has members. A flock has sheep. A building has stones. A family has family members. God's design for our discipleship and growth and maturity is the local church. Brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage each other and whose hearts are knitted together. You see how this is Paul's defense against Gnostic heresy. Loving Christ in the scriptures and loving the church. Now, as we say in our membership class, the church is God's greenhouse for growth. It's where we're grown in maturity. And that's my prayer for each and every one of us today. That we'd grow in the knowledge of Christ. That our hearts would be encouraged and knit together in love. That we'd rejoice in our good order and firmness of faith in Christ. Let's pray.